Well, good morning. It's glad to be back. Uh, good to be back for our weekly Bible talk. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7, so get your Bibles open there to Exodus 7. Just to kind of fill you in, life's kind of crazy right now. Uh, the kids are finishing up school. Today is actually the final day of school for them. Benjamin, my oldest son, is graduating from high school uh, on Friday, which is kind of crazy to think about. When I moved here to take the pastorate of this church, he was only about six months old, so now he's uh, graduating. And I kind of connect his life in a lot of ways with the history of this church, uh, so it is interesting to kind of see him finishing. Lord willing, he's going to be going to college in the fall. Um, and we're having a graduation party, um, and if you're tuning in, you're welcome to come to that if you want to. It's uh, Saturday from from four to six at my place. Um, and hopefully, uh, pray that it goes well and that we can get everything prepared and in order and whatnot. But with that, you know, life gets crazy, life gets busy, um, and we weren't able to have our Bible talk last week. So we're picking up today where we left off two weeks. We're going to be talking about the first plague, the plague of the Nile turning into blood. Just to quickly, quickly remind you the context, the Lord has raised up Moses to be his servant to redeem Israel out of Egypt. This entire event is a type, it's a spiritual picture of the redemption that God works for his people in Jesus. You know, we, like the uh, Israelites, were slaves to a cruel taskmaster, but whereas they were slaves to Pharaoh, were slaves to the devil and flesh and sin, uh, the Lord raises up Moses, similar to the way that he raised up Jesus, and like Moses performs all these signs and wonders and then leads them through the Red Sea, so also Jesus performs signs and wonders and then by his death and resurrection uh, leads us into eternal life. So there's a lot of similarities here. And obviously all of that is intentional. It's not just kind of a coincidence that the Exodus is an interesting spiritual picture of the redemption we have in Christ. Obviously God is sovereignly orchestrating all of this uh, behind the scenes so that it would be this beautiful picture. And to me, at the end of the day, that's one of the most powerful arguments that the Bible is from God. All of these shadows and types, uh, you know, particularly found in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, some of which are separated by thousands of years. How on earth could you have that if there wasn't one divine author behind the entire Bible? Uh, clearly God. And that's, to, to me, the more I've seen those, the shadows and the types and their, the promise and the fulfillment, uh, again, there's, in my mind, no way that the Bible is just this book cobbled together by ancient shepherds and fishermen and so forth. There, there must be a divine mind behind it all. But like we've talked about, um, initially Moses's uh, success rate is not real great. He goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, get lost. I, I don't know the Lord and I don't know you, and in fact I'm going to make things even worse for the Israelites. Now they're going to make bricks without straw. And the people are pretty un unhappy. They're like, Moses, why, what are you doing? You've just made things worse. But realize the Lord has put everything in place so that he might show his glory even more uh, magnificently. Uh, and again, like we've talked about several times, sometimes God allows things to get really, really bad so that he can display his glory even more. Obviously, that's true in our lives. Sometimes he allows things to get incredibly stressful, incredibly overwhelming, but only so that he can show his glory even greater. You know, keep in mind that at the end of the day, the entire purpose of the universe, the entire purpose of your life is the display of the glory of God. And because of that, sometimes things will get really, really bad. But uh, like Moses says to the people of Israel, now you will see what the Lord will do. Stand back and see the salvation of God. Keep that in mind when things get really rough in your life. Well, anyway, we're going to be talking about this first plague. Let me pray, and then we're going to dive right into it. Pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, we do gladly bow before you. You are Almighty God. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your purposes will stand. You will accomplish everything that you have planned. Help us, Lord, to gladly resign our lives over to you and to gladly submit every area of our lives to your Lordship. Please illuminate our minds now as we meditate on 
Exodus 7, help us to understand how this passage relates to our lives today, what we should believe and think and do in light of it. Help me to make comments that helpfully bring out the meaning and the intent of it. Help us to see how this entire storyline is preparing us for and pointing us to the Lord Jesus and his work on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, follow along with me. We're going to be reading Exodus 7, 14 on through 7, 25. The first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the Nile, going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile, shall, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now this is the first plague, and there's a lot we can and should say about these plagues. They're really rather fascinating. I preached through uh, the first half of Exodus maybe 10 years ago, and when we got to the plagues, uh, it really was captivating to see the way in which every single one of them is an attack on a specific god of Egypt. A lot of people don't realize that. These plagues are not chosen arbitrarily. It's not like God just said, okay, you know, let's, uh, let's do this and let's do that. No, they're actually aiming at different idols in Egypt, and one by one, the Lord is knocking down these idols uh, to show that they're not gods at all and to exalt himself as the Lord. That's one of the things that you see in this passage and that you see in other passages, that part of the whole purpose of this is so that Israel, yes, but also Egypt would know that the Lord is God. Uh, I think we alluded to that in this passage, but that will come up again and again and again throughout the book of Exodus. There really is sort of an evangelistic thrust to the work of Exodus, and not only on behalf of the people of Israel, because we don't think a lot of the Israelites were saved at this time. You know, they didn't really have saving faith in Jehovah. But in addition, he, obviously uh, the Lord wants to save Jews, but in addition to that, he also wants to save Egyptians. Um, and that's why throughout the book of Exodus, you'll see these allusions, they will know that I am the Lord, they will know that I am God. Um, there, there, again, is this evangelistic thrust here, which obviously, if you trace that, you know, it brings us to the New Testament, the church age, where now we're to make disciples of all nations. But let's talk a little bit about the Nile River. Uh, you probably remember this from your uh, history classes back in elementary school, but the Nile is a huge deal in Egypt. It's this long, I, is it the longest river? Yeah, it's the longest river in the world. It goes right up through Egypt, and it turns Egypt, which is otherwise a desert, into sort of this flourishing oasis right along the, right along the banks of the Nile. If you've ever looked at one of those like Google map images of Egypt, it is interesting. You know, the, the country's kind of squarish. Most of it is kind of brown 
brown and, and tan, you know, just desert. But then there's this sort of green uh, strip going up Egypt with this blue line right in the middle. And that's what the Nile River was. And uh, every year, as again, you probably remember this from elementary school, the Nile would over flood. Uh, that would turn the soil there in Egypt, incredibly rich. It meant that they could uh, grow crops and papyrus, and you know, life was good along the uh, Nile River. What that meant is that the Egyptians began deifying the Nile River. Uh, and this is something you got to keep in mind. We have an incredible tendency to turn good things into idols. Uh, this happens all the time. A good gift from God, uh, instead of thanking God for it, we turn it into an idol. We turn it, you know, we treat it as if a as if it were a god. And from Romans 1, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is not just carving a little statue of Buddha or something like that. No, it's when you take a good gift from God and treat it as if it is God. Instead of giving praise to God, the creator, for this gift, I treat this gift as if it's God. Uh, That's the heart of idolatry, and the Egyptians did that with the Nile River. We today can do that with virtually anything. Uh, you know, think about what are the idols of our culture? Uh, you know, things like money, power, family, uh, so-called science. I mean, there's a lot of idols in our culture. Now, again, we, we don't create little statues of these things. You know, I don't, nobody creates a statue of money and bows down to the statue of money. But if you look at money as the source of all goodness, if you look at money as the reason why you exist, if your entire uh, agenda and priorities and values are all connected to making more and more money, uh, that is your God, whether you recognize it as such or not. The Egyptians did that with an island. We do that with uh, you know our own things today. And one of the points you got to keep in mind here with um, the book, the book of Exodus, is that God is going to come after our idols, whatever they might be. And it, and it would be helpful for you to identify what those idols are that you're tempted to worship. I mean, what is it that you're tempted to look to as the secret to fulfillment? What what do you look to as uh, the, the really the, the the source of the happy life, the reason why I exist? Uh, it could be you know some false religion, Buddha or Hindu or you know Hindu gods or something like that. Or you know again for us Americans, it's more likely something like money, power, pleasure, sexual fulfillment. Uh, we tend to look at these as our idols. But whatever the case might be, God is attacking those. He is coming after those uh, to show you that he is the Lord. And if he needs to, he will uh, cut those down pretty severely. Uh, you, you know, he might show you, you know, say, say you worship money as your God, it might require him to bankrupt you before you discover, you know, money can't satisfy me like I think it can. Um, but do keep that in mind. God comes after our idols on the one hand, that's a little bit scary to contemplate, but on the other, the other hand, he does that because he's loving. You know, idols they corrupt our lives. They make they they, they really make us worthless and, and and destroy our lives. And if we die trusting in idols and not in the Lord Jesus, they'll they'll take us to hell. So why does God come after our idols and cut them down? Because he loves us and because he is so much better than the idols. Keep that in mind. Uh, you know, I say all of this knowing that my heart has a tendency to worship idols, and there are different idols that appeal to me. Um, and it is a little bit scary to contemplate God's going to come after these and, you know, if need be, take painful measures to show me how dead these idols are. But I've got to remind myself that God does that because he is loving. So coming back here to the passage, uh, you'll notice that Pharaoh went out to the 
Nile in the morning in verse 15. Uh, this was probably some sort of worship ceremony. Uh, you know, the whole religion of Egypt is really rather fascinating. Now it's, you know, dead as, you know, any false religion, but it is rather fascinating. They looked at the Pharaoh as a god, almost like a god incarnate, and they looked at the Nile as a god, and here this would have been to your average Egyptian, uh, you know, kind of like a meeting of the gods. So Pharaoh probably did some sort of ceremony or whatnot at this particular point, but at this very moment, you know, in the middle of their worship, Moses is to show up and to turn the water into blood. And you'll notice he uses that same staff. Again, I think I mentioned this before, but this staff is really quite significant. It's going to come up time and time and time again. It's the staff that Moses was using in Midian as a shepherd. It's the staff that he threw down and turned into a snake. It's the staff that Aaron throws down and turns into a snake, and then it swallows the uh, Egyptian magician's snakes. It's this same staff here. It's the same staff later on that he's going to hold up and part the Red Sea. So this, interestingly, this staff's kind of a, you know, it's almost like a character in the book of Exodus. But with this staff, he touches the Nile and it turns into blood. Now, what would that have communicated to the Egyptians? Now, just try to put yourself in their shoes. You've got this god, and again, you can understand why they'd worship it as a god. I mean, it was the source of their abundance, the source of uh, fruitful crops and, you know, land that gave forth um, crops and whatnot. You can understand why they look at it as a god. But all of a sudden, this water turns into blood. And clearly from the passage, it's not just like red in color, uh, but it's it's unusable. It's undrinkable. You can't, you know, it's stank, all the fish died. So what would that have communicated? That clearly, I think, would have communicated to the Egyptians that uh, the Lord, through Moses, just killed their god. Uh, One of their most important gods, the god that their entire livelihood is dependent upon, uh, you just killed him because you turned him into blood. I mean, what, what, what would it communicate if all of a sudden, you know, you go into your, I don't know, friend's house, and instead of seeing your friend, you see this giant pool of blood everywhere. The conclusion you're probably going to draw is, you know, my friend's dead or something like that. Uh, So also the common sense conclusion they would have drawn is that the Lord just killed our God. And that's, uh, you know, to them, almost mind-boggling. And did you catch how long the Nile was turned into blood? If you jump down to verse 25, seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So seven days, their main source of fruitfulness, their main source of abundance is dead bloody. Uh, now that would have been quite scary. I mean, to, to not have water for you know 24 hours is a hardship. To not have good water for this long would have been devastating. Uh, now, as you read the passage, there are evidently other places where they could get water. It talks about them digging down to get water. You, you know, again, if you remember elementary school science, if you dig down below the water table, apparently some water can seep in that way. It also says that it's only in the land of Egypt where the water turned into blood, so maybe they went to other locations to get uh, water. We know that the Israelites are dwelling in the land of Goshen, which is kind of this section of Egypt. And we know from other plagues that these plagues didn't strike Goshen in the same way that Egypt as a whole was struck. So maybe there's water in Goshen. Almost certainly there's water in Goshen. So they could have gotten water one way or another, but clearly this would have been an incredible hardship uh, and, and it really would have made life miserable. I mean, just imagine you're seeing bloody water, dead fish. And you ever, you ever seen dead, you know, did you ever you know go to the fair and get yourself a goldfish and then, you know, you put the goldfish in the pool, and then you know, the next day you come back and he's dead, and he's floating belly up. I mean, that's, that's pretty sad and disgusting. Imagine hundreds of such fish, thousands of such fish in your Nile River that just the day previous, you and the Pharaoh were worshiping. It would have been rather devastating. But again, God is trying to show the Israelites and the Egyptians that, that he is the Lord, and that these things that you worship as gods are dead nothings. Now, what else can we say about this? I'm trying to glance quickly at other things that we might say. Um, 
Verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Again, this is a theme that's going to come up in the first few plagues. If I remember correctly, there are ten plagues, and of the ten, like the first three, the Egyptian magicians are able to mimic. They're able to somehow turn water into blood, and they're able to bring more frogs in and so forth. Like I mentioned, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, don't be surprised if false religions do have a sort of negligible amount of supernatural powers. Um, you know, that's true. The devil is, you know, he, he's got supernatural powers. Now, in comparison to the powers of God, they're not even close. Uh, you know, God can create a universe out of nothing. The devil can just like turn a stick into a snake. I mean, th- th- that's the difference in the amount of power the devil has compared to God. And yet again, don't be surprised when false religions from time to time are able to exhibit supernatural powers. The devil's been doing this from the very beginning. You know, if you read your passages about the Antichrist and whatnot. Uh, You know, he's going to be able to perform false signs and wonders and whatnot. So again, don't be surprised, but again, don't fear that because in comparison to the power and the glory of God, his power is so much uh, greater. I mean, it's like, it's as far as like an ant compared to, I don't know, the the greatest creation you could ever imagine. That's how different the power of the devil is compared to God. Though again, don't be surprised. I've heard of missionaries going to a lot of contexts and, you know, they're observing some sort of false worship uh, false religion worship and you know really freaky stuff can happen again again don't get bothered by that don't get you know the bible tells us to expect that sort of thing if anything uh, that's not a confirmation that this false religion is true it's a confirmation that the bible is true because that's exactly what uh, god told us to expect from false religions yet another thing you may have noticed uh, verse where did it go uh, verse 23 uh, well, let me go back up to verse 22. The magicians did the same thing. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. One of the big lessons we're to learn from the book of Exodus is the way in which miracles on their own cannot elicit saving faith. All right, let me say that again, then explain what I mean. Miracles on their own cannot elicit saving faith. You think about the miracles in the Bible. Are, are there miracles in the Bible? Of course. And they are genuine, uh, bona fide, glorious miracles. And yet, they do not have the power in themselves to bring people to saving faith. Pharaoh and the Egyptian magicians saw some of the most glorious miracles the world has ever seen. Uh, Fast forward to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the Sadducees saw some of the most glorious miracles the world has ever seen, Uh, especially when you get to Jesus. I mean, we're talking about raising people from the dead and healing sick people, giving sight to the blind. I mean, these are glorious miracles, and yet uh, those on them... alone can't elicit saving faith. What is necessary is A, the preaching of the gospel, and B, the work of the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts. And this is why Jesus takes a rather curious view of signs and wonders in his ministry. I mean, he's performing signs and wonders pretty much everywhere, but at the same time he says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. uh, Because he knows that, again, the sign itself, uh, you know, it could be imitated by the devil. It doesn't really have any gospel conveyed in it. I mean, if I, if I just see somebody raise the dead and I don't know anything about this person, don't know anything about their message or about what they believe, that, that really doesn't communicate anything. Um, so when a sign and a wonder is not accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, all it has the potential to do is, you know, harden you further in your sin, which is exactly what happened to Pharaoh and which is exactly what happened to Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I say all of this in part because there is a movement that thinks that we need signs and wonders to really reach our culture with the gospel. Uh, That, you know, the the, the Bible, the 
Holy Spirit prayer, that's really not enough. The church really ought to be doing impressive signs and wonders, you know, healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. If, if, the cult, if we did that, the culture would pay attention. And there are some that claim that that's the reason why the church is struggling so much in America today as we are. We're not employing signs and wonders like we should. I would contend, I would uh, disagree with that entirely. Uh, on the one hand, first, I don't think the church today is given the ability to do signs and wonders on demand. I mean, that was given to some of the prophets in the Old Testament, it was given to the apostles, but we don't see ordinary Christians uh, given the ability to do signs and wonders on demand uh, here, there, and everywhere. Additionally, uh, like I've tried to make the point here, the word of God and the gospel is what God uses to convert people, not bear signs and wonders. Um, and when the word of God is proclaimed, when we pray earnestly that God's spirit would work, when the spirit comes and convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that can convert people even without signs and wonders. Because again, signs and wonders on their own, nothing. Uh, they can simply harden people in sin. And it's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation, not my ability to say, you know, lengthen somebody's short leg or something like that. Now, I know that that is a rather controversial statement to make today, and I know that there are good Christians out there that disagree with me on this. Uh, I'm simply laying out my position uh, on the role here of signs and wonders. I think they were for unique time periods in redemptive history, and, and this might be a worthwhile experiment to do. Draw a timeline of the Bible. You know, get a, you know, get a piece of paper and begin with creation and go to today, you know, write out a timeline and identify where the miracles are happening. Uh, it's really rather fascinating. The, the miracles are not characterizing the majority of redemptive history, but these little tiny segments where God is doing something unique. You know, just real quick, you think about it, where are the miracles happening? Uh, are there miracles, um, you know, with Adam and Eve? I mean, I mean kind of, creation's a miracle, but you don't see Adam and Eve like going around performing miracles. Uh, would, would the flood be a miracle? I mean, yes, but again, it's not similar. You know, it's not like these plagues here. It's a little, you know, it's rather different. Uh, you know, as far as we know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they didn't really see miracles, weren't really doing miracles. Um, the miracles really kick in here at the Exodus. And for a brief period of time, Moses does all these plagues. And you know, there are miracles, obviously, in the wandering around in the uh, wilderness with things like you know quail coming down from heaven and so forth. Uh, but once Israel lands in the promised land, uh, it really seems like the miracles come to an end. And for a long, long time, I mean, as far as we know, Joshua never did really any miracles. And, you know, they were rather rare until we get to... Elijah and Elisha, who were able to perform miracles, but again, that seems to be a very pivotal period in redemptive history because it's sort of preparing the nation for judgment, right, before they go into exile. So there's a bunch of miracles there. Uh, but then again, we come to Jesus' ministry and the apostles, a bunch of miracles there. Uh, but even as we head toward the end of the New Testament, the miracles really diminish. If you read the latter part of the book of Acts, the miracles have really diminished compared to the earlier part of the book of Acts. So what you have, if you, if you were to create this timeline of the Bible, is sort of these bunches of miracles at the Exodus, um, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus' ministry, but not characterizing the entirety of uh, redemptive history. And there might be periods of hundreds of years past where there's no miracle that happens that we know of. And again, as I read the Bible, we're living now in one of these eras where miracles are not the norm. Now, can God do miracles? Of course. Should we pray for miraculous healing and whatnot? Yes. But to say that somebody is gifted to be a miracle worker on demand, like say Elijah and Elisha, or like Moses, or like the apostles, I, I just don't see that as characterizing this particular period of the, uh, of redemptive history. But again, I know that other good Christians disagree with me. Uh, I don't know how we got off on that, but if you've got 
questions, concerns on that, feel free to leave uh, those uh, in the Facebook page or on the sermon audio page, and perhaps I can get to them. But the long and the short of it is, I don't think the church is suffering because we're not employing signs and wonders. And also, I don't think you should feel guilty or ashamed if you're not seeing miracles on a regular basis. You know, don't think that the reason I got cancer is because my faith is weak. Uh, don't, don't think like you can go to your pastor and he's going to miraculously heal you from your cancer. Uh, should we pray for healing? Of course. But again, I don't think there are healers on demand in this particular time in history. Uh, again, I, pr- I probably stirred up a nice little hornet's nest there, so feel free to uh, leave questions, comments, and that sort of thing. How should we pray this passage back to God? I mean, many things come to my mind as we think through how to pray this passage back to God. First, thank God that he does come after our idols. I mean, it would be an unloving thing for God to let us worship idols throughout this life because that corrupts our lives, and then in the life to come, we're eternally lost. So thank God that in his mercy, he comes after our idols. Um, That was true here in Egypt, and I think it's true in your life, especially if you're a believer. Uh, Whatever that thing is, you idolize. Uh, And it could be anything, you know, car, family, physical health, physical appearance. God loves you too much to let you destroy your life with that idol. So he's coming after it, and he will use painful means if necessary to teach you to not worship that. Uh, Thank God for his love. Thank God that he is the true and only God, um, and that all these other gods that we worship as idols are, are nothings. They're, they're dead and, and lifeless. And thank God that his power is so much greater than the power of Satan, the evil one. Um, any other prayer requests that this might prompt us to pray? Uh, thank God that if we believe, he opened our hearts. Because again, like I said, bare miracles alone can't do it. Um, bare apologetic evidence. You know, if I show you some ancient coin from uh, you know the first century and it's got the face of uh, Caesar on it, it's pretty interesting and it can kind of uh, affirm what we see in Scripture. Uh, but that alone isn't enough to bring people to saving faith. So if we believe, thank God that he opened our hearts that we would believe on the Lord Jesus. Let me pray along these lines and we'll be done. Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, thank you so much for the way that you are the great and awesome God, the almighty God. All the gods of this earth are dead idols. You, O oh Lord, made the heavens and the earth. We thank you for the way that you exalted yourself over Pharaoh and over the Nile River, and we thank you for the way that you exalt yourself over our idols, the things that we turn to for uh, ultimate joy and purpose. Help us, Lord, to identify our idols, to hate them, to put them to death, and to fear, love, worship you and you alone. Father, we do thank you for the incredible typology that there is here in the entire Exodus story and for the way that that reflects uh, the work of redemption that you did through Jesus. Please help us to increasingly see the way in which the Bible is intentionally composed this way with shadows and types and and prophecies and fulfillments all climaxing in what Jesus did to save us. And do move in our hearts that we would rejoice in him, trust in him, rest in him even more. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.